0: of the essence right we did some research we can talk more about it but one of the things we found is that for every week that commerce does not make a decision we're losing 200 megawatts of deployment
1: a major push is underway to onshore energy production and manufacturing in america for good reason Russia's attack on Ukraine has highlighted the vulnerabilities of global energy supply chains and how energy resources can be used to undermine American allies. At the same time, U.S. communities hard hit by globalization and domestic economic shifts are looking to various forms of energy as a path to job creation and revitalization. But creating a more energy independent nation comes with its challenges. How can the U.S. shore up energy security on a tight timeline? Will the effort to increase domestic energy production delay the shift to a low carbon future? Plus, a solar trade case launched in the name of boosting American clean energy manufacturing threatens to completely derail U.S. solar deployment, putting jobs at risk and climate goals out of reach. We break down Washington's big policy decisions on boosting American energy on this episode of Political Climate, a biweekly podcast on energy and environmental issues in America and around the world presented by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute and in partnership with Canary Media. I'm your host, Julia Piper. On the line are my beloved co-host, Brandon Hurlbutt, who is with Boundary Stone Partners. He's also a clean tech investor and former Obama administration official and expert on all things climate and climate advocate, I'll add. Hi, Brandon. How are you?
2: Good to see you. Uh, It's nice to be on Julia's podcast, as Senator Heinrich uh, called it when we were all together Saturday (laughs) night.
1: We were all together on Saturday night and had the awesome opportunity to hang out with Senator Heinrich, our favorite senator of of New Mexico. And he did say, oh, I love Julia's podcast. Maybe I'm Adling on the I love part, but he did call it my podcast. (laughs)
3: He got the evil eye from Brandon and I. I don't think he'll make that mistake again. (laughs) (laughs) He
1: just knew what was what. And that other voice you heard there, if you're not familiar with our show, is Shane Skelton. Of course, he's also with Boundary Stone Partners, our guru and expert on all things happening on the Hill and in Washington, D.C., former Republican staffer on energy issues. Shane, what's new with you?
3: Busy like everyone else, I imagine, because there's sort of a lot of fits and starts, and I know we're going to talk about a lot of that today. But it was a lot of fun seeing you and Brandon, our good friend Senator Heinrich, and lest I remind our audience, when we talk about you know whether there will ever be bipartisan energy legislation, uh, we also had the chance to see Jay Faison, the founder of Clear Path, and a very sort of prominent uh, GOP clean energy and, and climate advocate who's really been successful in helping move the narrative uh, amongst Republicans on at least a certain set of clean energy issues, and so. Do want to you know give a hat tip to Jay uh, for showing up and spending some time with us, but also just remind our listeners that you know we have a, an election upcoming, and if there's no reconciliation prior to that, it doesn't mean you know the world is going to end. We still have opportunities to do some pretty cool stuff.
1: Ah, well, we will discuss the potential for a bipartisan energy bill in just a moment. First, I just want to note it's kind of cool that LA has become this sort of hub for people to come through and talk about climate and clean energy in a way that I think I've seen evolve in this goodness five or six years that I've been here. Mind you, we're also coming out of the pandemic and that's just all great, but it's just so awesome to be together in one room again with all the thought leaders on these issues. There's a lot happening here in climate tech that I don't think people realize and just
2: came from the Milken conference uh, where there was more discussion about climate than ever, uh, which is really exciting.
1: Well, it's also really exciting to have you guys back on the podcast. One of our listeners pointed out that they missed you all. Uh, You haven't been around for a little bit, so it's no surprise Senator Heinrich called this my podcast, I just want (laughs) to say. Speaking of people coming on the show, later in this episode, we are going to be joined by Abby Hopper, who is the president of the Solar Energy Industries Association. I sit down with her to discuss a solar tariff case that threatens to cut solar deployment this year by nearly half if the tariffs are indeed approved. So stick around for that conversation coming a little later on. Now I want to dive into the latest news out of Washington, D.C. Mind you, it feels like the latest news, but also like we're on some merry-go-round reiterating the same conversation, but nonetheless, it's super important. So reconciliation bill, as everyone will recall, has around $550 billion worth of climate and clean energy programs. This is the legislation that Democrats have been spearheading. Tons of work went into it last fall up until, as we'll recall, Senator Manchin of West Virginia, a Democrat, said just ahead of Christmas that he was a no on that bill. But the reason I'm bringing it up again is because the clock is starting to run out. And amid all this, we're hearing that Senator Manchin has gathered a bipartisan group of lawmakers to discuss some other type of legislation that they could pass on energy on a bipartisan basis. Now, there's been a lot of, I think, uh, anxiety around that among the climate and clean energy community that have worked really hard on reconciliation. Right. And so I want to start with this. We're hearing these headlines about this bipartisan push heading into the summer, heading into an election, as you noted, Shane. Maybe we'll just start with you on the nuts and bolts, Shane, of what is happening on this bipartisan basis and whether there's really a there there. Noting this was a relatively small group of lawmakers, including Republicans such as Lisa Murkowski, Dan Sullivan, Bill Cassidy and Mitt Romney and a handful of Democrats as well. So not exactly a widespread effort.
3: Yes, I think you have to think of the bipartisan effort and the reconciliation effort as two separate packages. I mean, if you start to think about them as, oh, the bipartisan effort is going to displace the reconciliation effort, then obviously advocates who work very hard to get the reconciliation effort to where it is are going to be incredibly disappointed. Um, There's no scenario where a single Senate Republican is going to vote for a reconciliation bill, period. Right. So that is not a viable outcome. I think What Senator Manchin is doing is he's hearing from some of his Republican colleagues on what they would find as pieces of an acceptable energy package. So Senator Kevin Kramer from North Dakota talked about, you know, carbon capture and sequestration, uh, has talked about nuclear energy credits in the past, talked about uh, hydrogen as something that's worth pursuing. There are some, you know, if you have a Venn diagram of climate policies, there's not a ton of overlap, but there are certainly things in the reconciliation package that Republicans will support. So I'm viewing it as Democrats have about, realistically, four to six weeks to figure out if they have the votes to pass something on the floor. As a matter of law, they have until September 30th. That's what the budget resolution allows them, unless they pass an additional resolution to, to buy them another year, which they do have the ability to do. But realistically, they have till September 30th. Uh, in the political reality that we live in, once you get to, you know, some say Memorial Day, I'll say July 4th break, there's just not going to be a lot of interest post-primary season. Uh, for members to engage on the floor to eat up that floor time they're going to be home they're going to be talking to their constituents campaigning and getting ready for that so my thought is this they're going to figure a way forward in reconciliation or they aren't smart people will tell you it's about 50 percent, which is really unhelpful obviously but i think that's sort of where we are the other piece though i think we should also take very seriously because if there is no reconciliation effort there are still some tax credits that are important to the clean energy industry and to other industries frankly that will either get reduced or expire at the end of this year. And usually those are extended or you know sort of given a couple more years at their full rate on a bipartisan vote. And so, you know, September 30th, appropriations run out. If passed as prologue, and it always is, they'll pass a two-, three-month continuing resolution to keep the government open until after the election. And then you get to that sort of December holiday crunch, and they need to pass a funding bill to get into the next year. That is typically the vehicle for some sort of tax package or some sort of tax extenders or some tax provisions. And so I would eye this bipartisan effort is what can they come up with that could be tacked on to a spending bill at the end of the year and either create new or extend existing tax credits if those aren't taken care of in a reconciliation effort prior to the election.
1: Well, I do want to just add, though, that if you look at the press reporting on this anyway, certain Republicans have said their goal is to derail the reconciliation bill. So that is coming from political reporting. They reference Senator Kevin Kramer, who says, you know, if they can break Democrats' resolve to pass a party line tax and spending bill, then, quote, hallelujah. So while I hear your point, Shane, that these are separate initiatives, it doesn't seem like that's the case for everybody.
3: Well, I'll tell you right now, and then I want to hear, Brandon, that there is not a single senate or house republican that wants to see literally anything happen prior to the election if you look at the polling if you look at where the country is right now if you look at what they expect to do in november anything but the status quo is unhelpful so of course they don't want to see some massive package passed either because they think it's bad for the country or they think it might give Biden a boost or both. But in any case, there's no scenario where any Republican on either side of the aisle wants to see any sort of major legislative package pass, unless it's the anti-China bill, which is what I'm calling it, even though it has several different names, um, because that was sort of moved through the process on a bipartisan basis over the last year.
1: I think competes is one of the name for it. But yes, broadly reaffirming U.S. sort of manufacturing and dominance in various sectors of the economy. But Brandon, what do you make of this bipartisan energy push coming from Senator Manchin, our our friend, and he really is dominating headlines very effectively uh, with this push. Is there something here? Could he be doing this to say, hey, look, Democrats, I tried the bipartisan thing yet again, and maybe giving himself cover for passing reconciliation by entertaining bipartisanship? Maybe I'm grasping at straws. What is your read? That would be the rosy view. And,
2: yeah. you know. That could be a political maneuver.
1: That uh, he's like, I tried again on bipartisanship. It didn't work. And so, OK, fine, yeah. I'll do reconciliation.
2: Yeah, I hope that's the case. Um, but There's not a lot of trust there. You know, I'm old enough to remember when Senator Manchin was going to find 10 Republicans to do, you know, voting rights reform. <laughs> you know, mm. that didn't happen. Right. So I think there's not trust there. And then, you know, as you alluded to, Julia, when you have Republican senators, you know, openly telling the press that they want to derail this, um, that doesn't give people confidence uh, either. And then we have this, you know, earthquake from yesterday uh, from the Supreme Court, you know, where now Democrats want to um, abolish the filibuster, you know, so that they could codify Roe v. Wade.
1: And by that, you mean there was a leaked draft opinion from the Supreme Court outlining the rollback of Roe v. Wade. And that was actually, in fact, confirmed by Justice John Roberts to be a legitimate draft opinion. Uh, Mind you, we don't know exactly where that decision will land, but it's certainly already become a political lightning rod.
2: So there's a lot happening here in Washington, D.C. As you mentioned, there's, you know, and Shane mentioned, there's a small window here of the next several weeks. Uh, to get something done in reconciliation, they have to. You know, most, if not all, Democrats feel like this is the last chance to do something significant. You know, in the Congress on climate for many years, uh, because if Republicans take charge, you know, this November and the Senate map for the Democrats in 2024 is brutal. Right? There's some of these reports that if the Democrats get, you know, 53, 54 percent of the vote, they wind up with 43 Senate seats. <laughs> So, this there's a lot of pressure to get this done in the next uh, several weeks, and a lot of things competing for airtime with what happened in the Supreme Court yesterday.
4: Political climate is supported by Fish Tank PR. Before green hydrogen was a topic du jour, before every energy analyst was debating the next two quarters of storage cost declines, the Fish Tank team was entrenched in the clean tech and sustainability sector. Fish Tank brings together industry expertise and a love for storytelling. They're dedicated to putting in the time on media outreach to deliver your company meaningful transactional coverage. Whether your organization is scaling as you go for your Series B or expanding globally and reaching new customers and partners, find out the difference Fishtank can offer at fishtankpr.com forward slash canary. That's F-I-S-C-H tankpr.com forward slash canary. Political Climate is brought to you by MCE. A decade ago, Californians started a climate action movement and launched MCE, the state's first community choice energy provider. Community choice providers empower local communities to make their own decisions about the source of their electricity. Today, MCE offers nearly 40 Bay Area communities almost twice as much renewable energy as the state average. The power of MCE is about more than clean energy. It's the power of people over profit. Learn more at mcecleanenergy.org. So, Brandon, can I, I don't want to put too fine of a point on this,
3: but you were in the White House, or at least in the administration, last time the first two years of a presidency elapsed, and then Republicans took over Congress. Having lived through that, if you could give one or two pieces of sage advice to the, the folks running the administration right now, what would
2: they be? Well, one is... Because of the bipartisan infrastructure bill, there's tremendous opportunity to move the needle on climate. not enough. We need reconciliation, but something to work from. So you saw yesterday, you know the Biden administration put out three billion dollars you know for batteries. You know my advice would be, you know one, staff up, you know, get the right people in charge because I think they're still, you know they're missing some some senior roles. Like there's not a head of the Office of Clean Energy Demonstrations and Undersecretary for Infrastructure at the DOE yet. Get the right team in place, get that money out, get it to the right places, um, and then use every type of executive authority that you have possible. Like there's you know we talked about the Domestic Production Act. Uh, I think we're going to get into that. Biden has done some of that on critical minerals. You could do more, uh, especially to alleviate everything that's happening. You know over in Europe. So I think that's what we did is we got real serious about what are those authorities in the executive branch, they're pretty vast, and how can you use those to uh, advance your agenda?
1: Yeah, we'll talk about that from a trade perspective as well um, a little later on in this show. But I do want to revisit your point there, uh, Brandon, about uh, this announcement on uh, battery manufacturing. That was actually $3.16 billion from the bipartisan infrastructure law to boost domestic manufacturing and supply chains for battery storage, uh, supporting the electric vehicle uh, surge as well as grid storage and other types of battery storage around the grid. So that's a big deal and really something tangible we can point to and I think fits into this broader theme we're seeing today of onshoring more American energy production. Of course, there's different flavors of that. And one thing that I think will resonate with Senator Manchin and and many Republicans, as we've seen them comment on, is more domestic fossil fuel production. So in the bipartisan energy bill context, or maybe just more broadly, maybe first to you, Shane, how do you see the interplay of these different resources and onshoring them playing out? Do you think Democrats and Republicans could come together on an agreement for certain tax provisions for more domestic manufacturing of other types of clean energy, say? And do you think they'd push for more fossil fuel production onshore at the same time um, within the United States, I should clarify? What does that bipartisan package look like when it comes to U.S. energy independence?
3: Yeah, so, you know, You just talked about the battery manufacturing program. I just want to flag too for our listeners. There was another program right in the same section of the bill that was a clean energy manufacturing program. But the trick here is that it was $750 million for clean energy manufacturing. But the facilities that you're building with this money have to be in or adjacent to a census tract that has a coal mine or coal plant that closed. That was a provision that Senator Manchin negotiated. It's very similar to what I'm going to talk about in a second, which is the 48C tax credit. This is sort of a grant version of that credit where you're funding clean energy manufacturing, not, you know, fossil manufacturing, but you're doing it in regions that are losing fossil fuel jobs. So I think that's a really interesting way to think about revitalizing these communities with technologies that will drive us into the future. The the, the opposite side of that coin is the Section 48C domestic manufacturing tax credit. This originated in the Stimulus Act uh, back during the Obama years. And there's a new iteration of it now that was initially led by Senator Manchin and Senator Steve Daines, a Republican from Montana. Now, I don't you know have to tell you guys that he's not going to vote for the reconciliation package, but he did work on this specific provision. And what this would do is it would provide something, it's either 15 or 25 billion. I don't want to give you bad numbers, but it's a lot of money um, for clean energy manufacturing. The list of technologies that you can use it on is robust. It all has to be clean, but it can be anything from you know solar panels and and wind turbines to electric heat pumps that don't run on fossil fuel. So there's a very wide range of technologies that can be used on. And again, a lot of that money is earmarked for either of those fossil fuel communities that meet that same definition on or adjacent to a census tract or automotive communities. So these are communities that would be similar, except they used to have automotive jobs that they've lost over the past couple of decades. So they are trying to find creative ways to drive money into rural communities that have sort of switched between Republican and Democrat over the last several decades, whether it's because of a huge union push or you know, rural voters favoring the Republican Party more recently. But I think that's that's the ticket, right? You find a way to incentivize something that we all think is necessary, or at least a lot of us think is necessary. But you don't limit it to these coastal areas where people in the middle of the country are feeling like they're losing jobs or losing opportunity and no one cares. So I think those are the types of things we we would look at. There's also hydrogen, which is a zero carbon emitting fuel. It does have associated emissions, but not carbon dioxide. Um, That is something that can be made in any part of the country and can also revitalize some of these Midwestern fossil fuel regions. Um, There's the the carbon capture credits. You're probably going to see those expanded. So capturing and sequestering carbon will be more lucrative, but you can also do it through direct air capture, which wasn't the case until a few years ago. So I think there's going to be some focus on literally pulling carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. If I had to build a package that I think could get 60 votes, everything that I just listed for you would be in it. There might be some other stuff, too, because I think we've seen Republicans vote time after time, along with Democrats, for an extension of the solar ITC, uh, the wind production tax credit. So you can start to see something coming together there that, that incentivizes all different communities and all different technologies.
1: And I just want to ground us again in the fact that, like, I don't think personally anyway, this bipartisan energy bill has a chance of going anywhere, actually referencing your own point, Shane, that Republicans have committed to passing nothing in the lead up to the election. But here we're talking about it because, again, we could find ourselves in a different situation in the fall where bipartisan action is once again the only option. And we could see something happen at that point in time if reconciliation does not move forward.
3: I'll give you some breaking news right this second julia it just popped on my screen that jd vance won the ohio senate primary for republicans um his whole campaign i mean he came from hillbilly elegy he wrote that book about revitalizing domestic manufacturing in the midwest um i don't know you know there's a trump angle there's a lot going on here so i'm not going to totally you know deconstruct the politics but his whole platform his whole persona the reason he's famous is for really driving home that we need to create these jobs in the middle of the country in Ohio. Now, it was a crowded primary of traditional, you know, sort of chamber of commerce Republicans, different types of Republicans. So this, to me, right this moment is a statement about where Republicans in the middle of the country are heading as far as what they think the right types of policies are. And domestic manufacturing certainly falls in that bucket.
1: Well, it'll be interesting to see, again, if we can get past the talk and the meetings and whatever and actually get to action. Because what we've discussed so far are actually elements of Democrat policies, right? Infrastructure bill, bipartisan, take that point. But the tax credits you just ran us through, those are in reconciliation, the Democrat led initiative. So whether or not Republicans actually take that up, because they actually want to see this revitalization happen is very much an open question. So I do want to like, couch all of our comments in that. Amid the Russian uh, conflict in Ukraine, you have seen Republicans, you know, hammering President Biden for not doing enough on fossil fuels. One of the quotes here from a, a joint letter from Republicans to the president said, In the area of energy independence, we have lost ground, opening up American oil and gas deposits and in particular approving the Keystone XL pipeline would benefit our allies suffering under Russian tyranny and American consumers facing steadily increasing prices at the pump. So, Brandon, what are your thoughts on that? Is there a short-term action the Biden administration should take to make more fossil fuels available given this crisis that we're facing? Can clean energy fully step in and and do all of it? Also noting that we don't really have the domestic supply chain yet to do everything we want to do on clean energy. So what are your thoughts on this tension here of clean versus fossil at this particular moment in time?
2: You know, my old boss, President Obama, used to say, if it was an easy decision, somebody else would have made it. Uh, (laughs) I don't envy... President Biden right now he's got some really tough decisions on his plate. You know what's the end game in Ukraine? He's dealing with a madman dictator will stop at nothing. Uh, it's a really difficult situation. When it comes to the energy issues involved in this war, uh, which are so prominent, uh, again, there's not a lot of great options. I mean, one is there's the short term pain, right? Like you got to have the lights on in Europe. There are people paying an incredible amount for gasoline prices uh, in the United States. People are feeling real short-term you know, pain on this. What are the tools available? I mean, there are a lot of wells that are not being drilled uh, that could be. And one of those reasons is the fossil fuel industry does not have a lot of confidence or the, the people that provide capital you know, for this not have a lot of confidence in you know, 30, 40 year assets. You know so if you if you want to spin up an LNG terminal, it takes a while to build one of those. And it also has to be, that's a big capital expenditure. You've got to recover those costs, you know over you know 10, 20, 30, you know, maybe 40 years. And you know, because of the aggressive movement to clean energy and the cost decreasing, you know the capital providers are worried that that could become a stranded asset, <laughs> right? Um, because we simply can't lock in. If you look at Paris and all this, We can't be locking in new fossil fuel builds for like 40 years, right? So this is a really tough situation. So I think Biden is getting blamed a lot when the timelines don't really match up on what you could do in the short term. If you're going to build new stuff, it takes a while to do that. Two, the capital providers are not really interested in financing these 30, 40 year fossil fuel assets because they don't want to lose money. So... I think he's getting a lot of blame for things that like are totally beyond his control. And that's why I just favor as much as possible to move quickly to providing the resources for Europe on, you know, clean energy technologies like heat pumps and such, uh, because we can manufacture those, they're more efficient, use less, you know, electricity and send those overseas. So not a lot of great options in the short term, uh, but I think for medium and long term, uh, we should be using all of our resources to increase our manufacturing you know, capacity here for both America and to make these products and ship them over to Europe.
1: For reference, uh, the Biden administration did release one million barrels of oil per day from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. They moved to do that to help, you know, release the pressure of prices at the pump. Um, there have also been uh, leases on federal lands that have opened up. Mind you, the Biden administration was required to open up leasing based on a court order. I Shane...
2: If you were president right now, what would you do? Honestly, I'm probably going to get a lot of, of of
3: negative tweets right now. But if I were president right now or ever, I mean, I guess hopefully not in the future. We don't have these energy supply shocks. But I would try to deal with the immediate problem and the long term problem. Right. The long term problem is we don't want to be reliable on global commodities. The long term problem is we don't want to continue to emit endless amounts of CO2 into the atmosphere. The short term problem is we are currently reliant on those commodities and we need to get as much of them to flood the market as possible. To eliminate the pain that so many Americans are feeling in times of incredibly high inflation and so many Europeans are feeling because there's this great chart, and we should put this in the show notes, Julia. I'll send it to you. But it even shows US military installations in Europe that are reliant on Russian gas. It's insane. Like that should never be a thing. That is a very dangerous
2: proposition. And so we want to you know have the technology. Well, what would you do? What 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 if you were advising, I should say it's a better way to bring it. if you were advising the president. Or what would you advise the president to do in the short term? I would say let's invest
3: as much as we can in ramping up our ability to both make domestic electrified end uses across the board and helping consumers afford them. But let's also produce as much oil and gas as we can at this moment and ship as much of that gas as possible to Europe. Well, what could the president do to increase production? I don't know. I, I don't really know what emergency tools they have available. What I would probably do is reach out to industry and say, what can you do? I mean, is are we in a political game right now? Or is there something that if I, you know, gave waivers or rolled back?
2: I a... think that their answer is we want long-term certainty. And that can't be provided because of climate, right?
3: Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think so. I have to imagine there are tools that would allow you to flood the market in the short term, but I'll be honest in saying I don't know exactly what they are. I just kind of look at it as like, when is this problem going to be solved? So let's say that we, you know, we're able to ramp up domestic manufacturing to provide Right now, like EVs, people are paying for them and not getting them. Right, so it's it's not just a problem of having an end user that wants the product. We actually can't get them to market. Um, We we need heat pumps. We need people to understand what they are. We need installers to understand how to install them. We need contractors and salesmen to be able to recommend these when they do an energy audit on your house. Like there is a huge problem that's going to take five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years to, to solve. And so. What I don't want to do is say, let's lock in a bunch of fossil fuels and emissions for the long term, because that's the opposite of what we're trying to accomplish. But I also do want to find a way. I mean, I drove by a gas station that said $6.79 on Sunday. I mean, that's insane. Now, I don't drive a gas-powered vehicle, so it didn't matter to me. But I imagine it matters quite a bit to the people who are
2: up there. Yeah, but this is the thing. I mean, Biden's catching a lot of heat, but I don't hear a lot of uh, solutions for the short term that he, that he controls, that he controls. Yeah, energy markets are tough
1: that he control. That's the key point is like what can a president do on their own given we're talking about global energy markets and physically moving a product around the planet. Interestingly, on the clean energy side, I know you referenced this, Brandon, you know, potentially having the Biden administration use the Defense Production Act, which is a longstanding, uh, I think it goes back to the Cold War era uh, law that allows the president to boost manufacturing in the face of an emergency in the name of national defense. And he already used this to support uh, minerals production domestically here that will enable the clean energy economy to grow here at home. But I think you alluded to this. Could the president use that to support things like heat pumps? And for anyone who doesn't know, heat pumps offer an energy-efficient alternative to furnaces that run on, say, fuel oil or air conditioners that really suck energy. They're a much more greenhouse gas-friendly and climate-friendly solution. And they get us off of fossil fuels, which we still do rely on global markets to supply. So in that sense, it is being called a national security imperative. And folks from Bill McKibben, a environmental activist to, you know, veterans and people who work in national security uh, are calling for the Defense Production Act to be used in this way to really wean ourselves off of these volatile oil and gas supplies. We're also seeing reports that six Senate Democrats will soon introduce a resolution to urge a swift transition to a clean energy economy as a national security imperative and condemn oil and gas companies for profiting off of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And that's coming up because we are in fact seeing companies like Exxon and Chevron seeing a big jump in profits in recent days due to soaring energy prices sparked by the war in Ukraine. Now, a resolution is not a law, but it does make a statement on where at least some of the party stands on this and what they want to see the president do. So, Brandon, do you think President Biden will take that on? Do you think he'll use the Defense Production Act or other means in a bolder way to jolt this shift into other kinds of clean energy solutions being adopted and developed here in the U.S.?
2: I wish he would. I mean, he can. And, you know, we saw our listeners have heard me make this reference so many times to the World War II arsenal democracy. We've seen industrial might of america when we rally around something we can uh, spin things up more quickly than you know people thought was possible and this would be a win for everybody we would create so many jobs we would enhance our own supply chain we could ship these products overseas and benefit american businesses all those things would be you know huge wins for us and so i would like to see uh them be more aggressive on this point you know not only with heat pumps Solar manufacturing facilities, battery manufacturing facilities. Let's make all this here in America have those jobs and send those products, you know, uh, overseas as well. And of course, use them here because people are in this crunch, as Shane mentioned. Right now, you order an EV. I mean, this is what Joe Manchin's saying. This is like a big barrier now to getting the EV tax credit and reconciliation. He's saying, "Well, EVs aren't so much demand like." you know, well, they don't need a tax credit. Like right now you're waiting six, eight, nine months to get an EV once you order it, right? That's because of the supply chain crunch. So it's really interesting that for so long, you know, it was all about free trade and, you know, um, efficient uses of like labor and whatnot. Uh, but now uh, because of the pandemic, because tensions with China are at, a, you know, extreme high and because we're in an energy war, <laughs> you know, this is all combining to, you know, have so much more interest in uh, scaling up manufacturing here. And I think that's great. I think that's something that should be bipartisan. I think that's something that we should be able to all agree on. Um, And I would use those executive authorities as aggressively as possible to make that happen.
1: And with that, I do want to switch to one other issue with a closing interview with Abby Hopper, the head of the Solar Energy Industries Association, to talk about solar tariffs, which is a really existential issue for the solar industry in America that pits the drive for more domestic manufacturing against the deployment goals we have. So let's turn now to that conversation.
4: Political climate is supported by Fish Tank PR. Fishtank PR is a public relations and marketing firm that was listed as one of Inc. Magazine's 5,000 fastest growing businesses in America last year. As the cleantech and sustainability sectors have boomed, so has Fishtank. But unlike many large PR firms, the Fishtank team has been immersed in cleantech for more than a decade, delivering results for clients ranging from renewable energy producers and software platforms to battery manufacturers and green builders. From PR and digital marketing to content writing, the team at Fishtank helps you develop a strategy of bringing your work to not only wider audiences, but the right audience. They'll listen and learn about the work you're doing on the ground as part of the climate tech revolution and translate that into visibility and strong narratives for your projects. To learn more about Fishtank's approach to clean tech and services, go to fishtankpr.com forward slash canary. That's fisch com forward slash canary Political Climate is brought to you by MCE. MCE was California's first community choice energy provider. For more than 10 years, MCE has helped communities across the Bay Area source significantly more renewable energy compared to the state's average. Nearly 40 communities are now a part of MCE, And together, they're leading on climate action for a brighter future. But the power of MCE is about more than clean energy. It's the power of people over profit. It's community power. MCE's efforts on climate justice and energy innovations have helped vulnerable populations qualify for programs like electric vehicles, energy storage, energy savings, and more. By building and buying more renewable energy, MCE puts the power back in your hands. We all deserve a fossil-free future that combats climate change and prioritizes energy equity. Learn more and take action at mcecleanenergy.org.
1: This year, California-based solar panel manufacturer Oxen Solar submitted a petition to the U.S. Commerce Department, alleging that Chinese companies were dodging U.S. tariffs on Chinese-made solar cells and modules by building them in Cambodia, Malaysia, Thailand, and Vietnam, while still using Chinese-built materials and intellectual property. In late March, the U.S. Department of Commerce announced it will launch an investigation into solar PV makers in those four countries for circumventing those duties, and the impact is already causing shockwaves across the solar supply chain. The U.S. solar industry relies heavily on imports in order to operate and meet deployment goals. There's simply not sufficient capacity here in the U.S. to meet the demand. For that reason, the Solar Energy Industries Association is forecasting a major decline in U.S. deployment this year. Cambodia, Malaysia, Thailand, and Vietnam represented 65% of all solar module imports in 2021. And if new tariffs are approved, imports from those countries could be liable for tariffs from 50% up to 250% if the trade case continues to move forward. The push for greater American manufacturing is at the heart of this trade case. But are tariffs really the right path forward for the creation of a robust and healthy U.S. solar manufacturing sector? I sat down with Abby Hopper, CEO of the Solar Energy Industries Association, to discuss why the trade group believes this commerce investigation has created an existential crisis for the solar industry. Here's what Abby had to say. Abby, thanks for taking a few minutes away from this conference here in New Mexico to talk with me. It's so good to see you, Julia. Yeah. Thanks for coming. Yeah, I have like work in the solar industry now, but used to chase you around conferences, and I feel like we're right back at that. So I know. We, we found a little room and our, took a few <laughs> minutes to chat. Yeah, and so I want to talk with you about what's known as the Oxen case, this, mm-hmm. this trade case that the Commerce Department has taken up here. But I want to start with this angle of what... I think supporters would say the case is trying to achieve which is onshoring and bringing more capacity into domestic market for solar products and components which I think in today's environment we can appreciate that larger goal right mm-hmm. we're realizing the global vulnerability of our not only fossil fuel supply chains but also our clean energy ones and wanting to have more of that security and peace of mind by onshoring it here and so arguably the case tries to do that lay out for us your perspective and Sia's perspective on what this case does and whether or not that goal will really be achieved. Yeah.
0: No, I think you're right in identifying, I mean, you might be even a little more generous than I might be about what the, what that particular <laughs> company's goal is, but the sure. goal in general of ensuring more domestic manufacturing, ensuring a more secure supply chain, right? Not not allowing ourselves to be kind of subject to the vagrancies of global events and challenges at ports and all of those things, we recognize and have recognized for a couple of years that onshoring domestic manufacturing is a priority. And so there's a whole suite of provisions in the uh, reconciliation bill that we think would do that. Our issue, our challenge, our problem with this particular case is we think that it is not the right way to go about that, right? Like, even if we all agree on the goal, this is not the way to achieve that goal.
1: Yeah, I don't mean to be overly, uh, yeah, generous, as, as you're <laughs> saying, because it is one company, Oxen Solar, that brought this case that's really held up the entire solar industry in America on the deployment side, mm-hmm. is my understanding. I think CEO is projecting something like half of the market could be, you know, delayed or eliminated this year because of the uncertainty. So walk me through some of the negative impacts of just what this one case is doing.
0: Yeah, Well, I think, you know, one of the things I've really learned by talking with a lot of people about it is that once folks understand two critical facts, like the light bulb goes off, one of those facts is that the Department of Commerce, if they were to initiate tariffs, those tariffs could be retroactive. That is different and unique and particularly risky, right? So, Things that were purchased a while ago, that maybe were even on the water a while ago, but didn't clear US customs by April 1, could be subject to tariffs. And that kind of risk, like not knowing what your product is going to cost, so that's one, has caused companies to stop shipping. That's fact number two, right? And so a lot, like it's sort of in the sometimes with um, politicals or policymakers, they'll say, well, you know, I don't really understand, like, why why aren't people shipping? Why don't you okay? You guys just pay a little bit more? And I said, no, 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 like, it's not a question of cost. It's literally a question of availability. People, there like, are no panels. There are no panels. Like, the U.S. has become such a policy risk and a financial risk that pe- manufacturers go to other countries. And so those two things combined have really devastated the market. As you just said, there are literally no panels to be had. And no panels equals... No solar project equals less jobs.
1: Yeah, I did hear of certain manufacturers that are not even affected by this particular case. Uh, they produce in other countries, but they've decided not to ship to the U.S. right now because of this policy uncertainty. What if they right. become part of a future trade case? Right. Things like that. So on the merits, though, how does this work? What does the Commerce Department have to consider? What is their timeline for making that decision?
0: Yeah, so the legal question in front of the Department of Commerce is whether... The manufacturing that is taking place in the four named countries—Vietnam, Malaysia, Thailand, and Cambodia—whether uh, the manufacturing that takes place there is minor and insignificant, right? And those are those are terms of art, right? Those are words from the statute. Um, and if they are, if it's really just sort of a pass-through, if they're trying to circumvent U.S. trade law or the Chinese anti-dumping and countervailing duties then it's a violation of U.S. trade law
1: and tariffs should be imposed. And it should, we should say because tariffs already exist on Chinese products. Exactly. And so it's a circumvention of those existing tariffs. Exactly. Right.
0: Like if you think about it, like the way I think about it is sort of like a loop. Like you're like, whoop, I'm just going to go around that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Not going to do that. Um, but the Department of Commerce has held for more than a decade that cell manufacturing is a material and significant process right that the origin of a cell is defined by where it's manufactured even the CEO of Oxen the company bringing this case has testified to that effect in, in other proceedings and so we think on the merits that that we will win because it is true that cell manufacturing and, and module manufacturing are major <laughs> not minor yeah. and significant and that's what happens in those four countries and that's what happens in those four countries exactly. We also think that the Secretary of Commerce, once she makes that first decision, there is sort of another There is another layer of discretion. She has to decide whether a remedy is appropriate. And, uh, you know, the word appropriate is like a lawyer's dream, right? <laughs> like There's a ton of discretion um, there. And we think that looking at the impact this would have on the domestic market, the detrimental impact this would have on the domestic market, and really, no evidence to show that tariffs actually produce domestic manufacturing at scale would indicate that this is not an appropriate remedy. So on sort of both sides of the equation, we think this will, um, we will be successful. And the timeline, you asked me about the timeline. So the first thing that this Department of Commerce has to decide, they have to make a preliminary determination. By statute, they have 150 days, so that brings us to about August 31st. Uh, we have been arguing voraciously that they should not take all of that time, that the evidence is clear, their past precedent is clear, and that, you know, the industry is in such turmoil and they've created such chaos, they need to act much more quickly. We're really pushing them to act in the next 30 days, so 60 days from initiation. The Secretary has the authority to end this case now. She can decide that there's no circumvention happening, issue a preliminary negative finding, and then follow that up with a final determination. So you can see time is of the essence, right? We did some research. One of the things we found is that for every week that commerce does not make a decision, we're losing 200 megawatts of deployment. So 200 megawatts times 200 megawatts times 200 megawatts, and that's how we get up to those big
1: numbers. And I think something like a hundred thousand jobs could be on the line due to these delays. And I think what's interesting from my perspective, now working on distributed solar solutions, is once installed, those solar panels help people control their energy costs. It's kind right. of inflation proof. But when right. you spike up the costs unnecessarily of the product, you take away that opportunity for consumers to do that. Yeah. Which is just especially painful timing, I think, given we're timing. seeing you know energy costs increase uh, around the globe. So you mentioned appropriateness, though. Going back to the domestic manufacturing part, I feel like even some people in the broader political world would be conflicted over that. They say, well, maybe we just need to deal with some pain so that we force, get that stick going to increase the domestic you know, production. So what if that becomes part of the appropriateness discussion on the other side? So how do you wrestle with that?
0: Yeah, um, I don't have to wrestle very long. Like, <laughs> I think about... 100,000 people losing their job in the next eight months, I am hard pressed to find a definition of appropriate that would include that, right? If I think about bringing the solar employment numbers back an entire decade, mm-hmm. right, Think of. you don't have to tell me, but think about where you were a decade ago, or where I was a decade ago, where the solar industry was a decade ago, mm-hmm. right? That's not pain. That's total devastation of an industry, right? That is not an appropriate remedy. I think there are lots of things we can do. If we think about the clean energy provisions in the reconciliation bill, right, there were domestic content pieces, Mm. right? That's a way to really identify the the behavior or the action you're looking for and then incentivize it. Similarly, in the SEMA provisions, right? Which is what exactly? um, Solar Energy Manufacturing for America Act.
1: Great. Thank <laughs> you. I can't Thank believe you. I was able to remember that. Pulled that, that <laughs> out of a
0: hat. Good one. <laughs> um, right. The clean energy, manu- this, the solar manufacturing provisions that are in the reconciliation bill that passed out of the House, all of those things are ways that we can incent, but we certainly don't need to destroy the livelihood of 100,000 Americans in order to like, create a little pain.
1: It is interesting seeing some senators come out and speak out on this now. Uh, Senator Rosen of Nevada did lead a letter along with Senator Heinrich and Senator Sinema saying that these are not appropriate tariffs. They sent that letter to President Biden. And so what can he do? Like he, I think, would say, and we've heard the administration say, this is a quasi-judicial process Mm -hmm. through the Commerce Department. So what are the political levers here?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think... The senators sent that to the president, probably because they thought that was the, the best audience for it. Um, the president has been really clear about what his policy priorities are. I think we all want to make it very clear to the White House really what's at stake, right? This is not a little blip in the night. This is a complete um, freezing of our industry and and, and perhaps kind of a cutting us off at the knees if this goes through. I think the political tools that we are enacting, and as you know, we had a whole bunch of people in Washington last week for an actual in-person lobby day. Yeah. which was very First time exciting. in a while. First yeah. time in a very long while. And the message we we took to the Hill and to the administration was this damage is real and it's happening and it's now, right? We don't have to talk about the theoretical. We can talk about companies that are laying people off now. Um, so I think as many people as possible that are making clear the the costs and the appropriateness or the lack of appropriateness of a remedy. You know, our lawyers are taking care of the legal standard and litigating this in this quasi-judicial proceeding, but sort of helping inform and make sure that everyone in the administration knows what's really at stake is is our job.
1: So as a final question, you know, is this something we're going to see over and over again? This is not the first trade case. Will it be the last? I mean, is this getting easier for companies to do? based on whatever justification they provide, is it getting harder? And what are ways the solar industry can engage with not only the current administration, but with future ones, possibly Republican-led ones, to address this issue writ large? Yeah.
0: It's such an important question because think about how much time, energy, and resources we're spending fighting this case that we could be spending deploying and employing and investing. Um, And so we really need to keep our eyes focused on that bigger picture I think there were some recent changes in the regulatory structure over at Commerce that made it a little bit easier and perhaps gave the the secretary less discretion around initiating. But more importantly, right, if we all agree on the larger goal of more domestic manufacturing, the way that's going to happen is through the tax provisions and the incentives that we talked about in the reconciliation bill. So in my mind, that is the immediate answer. I think the larger question about our trade laws and you know our trade laws, sort of like our power grid, right? They were enacted during a different period with a different politics, different technology, and I think taking a a good look at what kind of behavior they're incenting and what uh, what perhaps they're not incenting is important. And we're doing that, and so I think sort of a bigger conversation is happening around what that looks like. That's not unique to solar, right? That's sure. uni- that's a whole bunch of different yeah. industries really thinking about what supply chains look like, what it makes sense to bring back to the U.S., and what it makes sense to to rely on our trusted partners for.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I feel like it's very bipartisan to want to grow the American economy, revitalize manufacturing hubs across the nation. Um, And so figuring out the best way to do that is both a huge area of opportunity and clearly also riddled with some challenges. Yes, it is. uh, (laughs) Thank you for taking a few minutes to talk about them. Really appreciate it. Sure. Thank you, Julia. Cheers. Bye. And that brings us to the end of this episode of Political Climate. Thanks so much to our editor, Kyle McDonald for all his great work, and to Maria Virginia Alano, our producer. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please hit that subscribe button wherever it is that you like to listen, and be sure to catch all of our latest episodes. Thanks so much. Till next time, I'm Julia Piper.